Hey everyone, I wanted to share some exciting news. The Impact Investing Podcast has been nominated for the Quill Podcast Awards. We've been nominated in two categories, Best Business Podcast and Best Finance Podcast. So if you've been enjoying the Impact Investing Podcast, I would really appreciate it if you showed your support by voting. You can access the link to vote by visiting my website, davidoleary.ca. And if you just hang out on the homepage for 5-10 seconds, you should see a pop-up that will invite you to vote. I'd appreciate your support. Also, a couple more updates. One is from Nia Crowdfund, which is the subject of today's podcast with founder Sarah Burns. And an update from their end, Nia is still building out their tech platform, working through some regulatory hurdles, which they expect to have resolved later this year and have the crowdfunding aspect of their work up and running. But in the meantime, they're holding monthly live pitch events where investors can listen to five African business, hear their pitch for investment, and can commit as little as $5,000 per deal. So if you want to learn about that and potentially participate in those, you can follow and get updates about those events at www.stonks.com slash Nia. Stonks is S-T-O-N-K-S. And Nia is N-I-A. So www.stonks.com slash Nia. Uh, also, Nia is raising a $25 million impact fund right now. There's a bar- larger ticket size requirement here than, than normal for them. But for that goal, the goal is to really help families and institutions who are interested in investing in small, impactful African businesses, but want to diversify their uh, exposure in a managed portfolio, have somebody else take care of picking those individual investments for them. And Nia in that fund is committing to invest at least 50% of the fund in businesses that are run by women. And on that note, one other update is from the folks at Third Way Cap. They are also raising for their investment fund. Third Way Capital was a guest on the podcast last year. You can go back and check that one out. And they are also addressing the missing middle of finance by investing in small, growing African businesses. Uh, A lot of their work is happening in Ghana right now, but they will be expanding through Sub-Saharan Africa. You can visit uh, them if you're interested to learn more about investment in Third Way at www.thirdwaycapital.co. And lastly, if you're following the news in Ukraine with a heavy heart, as I've been, and I'm sure lots of you are right now, I'd highly encourage you to go follow the Ukraine government Twitter account. The handle is at Ukraine. And they've been sharing information there about how you can directly support the military, like directly donate to support the military efforts of Ukraine to defend itself, and how you can either do that by sending cryptocurrencies like Bitcoin or ETH or through a wire transfer or pay by a credit card. They seem to be posting those updates uh, fairly regularly. Also, if you're following me on Twitter, you can visit my account, David Pioli. I've pinned, I've shared that post and pinned it to the top of my Twitter account. So hopefully if you're feeling like I have been frustrated and wanting to do something to help, I was pretty happy to stumble across that. And so I thought I'd share it here. With that, let's get on to the podcast. You're listening to the Impact Investing Podcast. I'm your host, David O'Leary. I'm a reformed free market capitalist who now spends his time trying to harness the power of the markets for good. And I started this podcast for anyone who wants to join me as I explore the world at the intersection of purpose and profit.
When you consider that the traditional investment industry can be traced back as far as ancient Mesopotamia in 1700 BCE, the field of impact investing is a baby. Indeed, the term itself wasn't coined until 2007. Since then, the industry has been evolving and growing rapidly. Yet, much of that growth has been occurring among a relatively small group of investors and concentrated heavily in a relatively small number of markets. Even today, most of the world's aspiring entrepreneurs do not have access to the capital they need to grow their small businesses. And the ordinary investors who might like to provide that capital are barred from doing so due to investor protection regulations. And herein lies one of the most significant criticisms of impact investing. Much like the traditional investment world, the impact investment industry is still dominated by a small number of investors and institutions supplying capital to a select group of entrepreneurs. Enter today's guest, Sarah Burns, founder and CEO of NIA Crowdfund. NIA is an online investment platform serving up opportunities to make impact investments in small businesses across Africa. NIA aims to address the missing middle of finance, a problem we've discussed at length on this podcast, to provide between $100,000 and $1 million of capital to early stage businesses. What further distinguishes NIA Crowdfund is that not only are they supplying this critical early stage financing, but they are focused on allowing ordinary investors to also participate in supplying that capital. During this episode, Sarah and I discuss her fascinating background of volunteering, researching, and working through the developing world, her doctoral thesis on impact investing as a Rhodes Scholar at Oxford, and now her work founding NIA Crowdfund to address the missing middle of finance, while also democratizing access to impact investing. Through the conversation, we discuss why the missing middle of finance is a challenge, the importance of democratizing access to impact investing, the well-intended regulations that exclude retail investors from it, and how NIA Crowdfund was designed to address the problems Sarah encountered during her work advising an ultra-high net worth impact investor. And be sure to stay tuned to the very end, where Sarah and I discuss whether impact measurement is beneficial or harmful to driving real impact. Sarah, welcome to the podcast. Thanks so much for having me. It's such an honor. And the fact that a Sir Ronald Cohen was on this and now me, it's, it's very exciting. So thanks so much for having me. Oh, my pleasure. Yeah, it certainly is a credibility boost because when I uh, started the podcast, probably, I guess it was two and a half years ago, I don't think anybody would have talked about it being an honor to be on, but he, he had some certainly some credibility. And, uh, and I imagine there will be guests after who will say it was an honor to be on the same podcast as Sarah Burns. So. <laughs> Oh, that's let's let's hope so. That would be very nice. If you're successful at what you're trying to achieve, I think that, and I think it sounds like you're doing some really cool stuff. Uh, I wouldn't be surprised if that happens. So maybe you can just introduce everybody to who you are and what you're working on. Sure, I'm Sarah Burns. I'm the CEO and founder of Nia Crowdfund. We're a completely new. We're just about to launch in the next few weeks equity crowdfunding platform that raises for African businesses. And each of the businesses we work with is contributing to the Sustainable Development Goals. And one of the main things we're really trying to do is to help fill the missing middle financing gap, which is a really big problem in Africa. There's that gap is about $140 billion. And there's so many amazing startups and small businesses out in Africa that desperately need finance and are having a really hard time finding it. So we do ticket sizes between 100,000 and a million. And we use crowdfunding to make it a lot easier for those businesses to actually raise what they need to 
you know, thrive, to get their businesses off the ground and to really expand and grow. So that's really our our main goal. And just a little bit about me, and I'm sure we'll dive into it more, but I just uh, finished a PhD at the University of Oxford as a Rhodes Scholar, and my research focused on the impact of private investment on economic rebuilding in post-conflict Africa, which is a bit of an academic mouthful there, but that was the main question I was researching for uh, five, six years. Yeah, so I'm, I'm excited to learn a little bit more about your work on that subject. It's an interesting one for me, given my kind of background and working in World Vision and in similar types of contexts. So I'm excited about that. And with Nia, really, it sounds like there's two two sides of the problem you're working on. One is the explicit missing middle of finance that you're addressing, which, you know, for people who are listening who maybe haven't heard an episode where we've talked about that already, this is, it is very difficult to access the capital markets and raise money as a small business in large parts of the world. And it's even difficult in the developed world, never mind, just a lot more difficult in developing countries and the, particularly at the smaller end of the scale where it's maybe not micro, where it's like a micro loan because it's fairly micro lending is fairly ubiquitous, but also just not as it's bigger than that. You know, maybe it's a thousand dollars and we can talk a little bit about how you define the missing middle where it starts and ends, but larger than micro loans and smaller than large banks and or private equity investors would typically want to make an investment and, and come in. And Sarah, you mentioned the kind of ticket sizes you're looking at, which is really in that sort of sweet spot of the missing middle. Exactly. But it's also democratizing access, right? So that we're not just dealing with ultra high net worth investors who can afford to, A, who are accredited and have the regulatory approval to make these types of investments, but also just the financial capital to make it happen and the connections and the you know access to those opportunities. Is that right? Yeah, absolutely. So one of the things that I learned, and I'm sure we'll go into a bit of my experiences before, but I worked in the impact investing world for quite a few years here in London. That's where I'm based in the UK. And I... It was really amazing to me how exclusive the African market is, even for impact. You really need to have strong networks there. You really have to have a large amount of capital to get into uh, the market. And that means that most of the investors who are in the African market are these really big development finance institutions like the IFC or the CDC or these quite large PE infrastructure or impact funds. And that is something that is just not helping the missing middle. But it also just means that as an investor, we have lots of just amazing angel investors who can who want to put money towards African businesses, but there's just no tangible way of doing that. There's no easy way for them to be able to find an African business to work with unless they have really strong networks. So we're really trying to take the barrier down and make it really easy for any type of investor who wants to contribute to be able to do that. Yeah, that's that's really well said. And it, it's I've, I think I've talked about this on the podcast before, but there's something... And I, I, when I look at it through different kind of lenses, I can see both sides of this discussion, but I'm ultimately still left with this uneasy feeling when I th- think about impact investing kind of being reserved for the wealthiest individuals, either because of regulatory constraints that prevent ordinary citizens from making investments or just needing the sort of scale and size of investment or the connections and the opportunity, access to those opportunities. There's something 
fundamentally unsavory about that. It boils down to this sort of question around is, is impact investing really just an excuse for the wealthy to profit off of solving a lot of problems that they greatly contributed to creating in the first place, whether that's climate issues or wealth inequality? Well, I don't know how you feel about that, but that I love that you're addressing this problem. I think that we're also going to get better outcomes if we have a more diverse investor group representing different perspectives and particularly for impact investing, where the more stakeholders we have at the table, particularly those I think about like the communities we're actually trying to help if we can get them involved as investors. And that's a long way between that and maybe where Nia's starting, but, but I like the direction of this for all of those reasons. Maybe can you talk a little bit about why that's important to you? Yeah, absolutely. One of the things, and this kind of goes back to one of my experiences. So I was working on a contract with an ultra high net worth client here in London, and I can't tell too much detail about it, but the way that he was doing business in one of the countries that I worked in Central Africa, I just didn't, I didn't agree with that. I didn't think it was ethical. He was using his money to try to have some political sway and was really exploiting the opportunity that came with that money. And I just think that that is just not the way that we should be doing any sort of impact investing. And that is what it was called. It was called impact investing. And so I think when we democratize the market, when we make it a lot more public, where all these deals are happening in a much more transparent way, that we're really opening up the market. And I think realistically, when you have a $140 billion financing gap, you're not going to solve it. And as much as it would be great if Bill Clinton solved it, it's all of us working together that is going to help solve it and not just a few people with deep pockets. So I think democratizing that not only does it make it more transparent, but it also gives other people a lot of opportunity. So I work with a lot of amazing and angel African angel networks across Europe and across um, Africa. And these are Africans that might not be able to invest a million dollars into a business, but they can invest 5,000. And that really gives opportunity for a lot more people to be involved and and to actually generate wealth. And it's not just the wealthy generating more wealth for themselves. So I do think there's certainly a place for these ultra high net worths to, to contribute. But I think it's more about working together to solve this problem and not just having the wealthy influence all of impact investing on the continent. Yeah. And maybe I'd love to unpack a little bit more the issue around like where the problem occurs when you really narrow the investor base. If you're thinking about it from a traditional investment perspective, investments, especially when we think about for most people, that means public market investing, or you're making an investment to Apple, Amazon, or even more removed, you're talking about a a basket of securities through a mutual fund or ETF, where it really wouldn't matter at all whose capital that is, because you're so entirely, as an investor in those scenarios, you're so entirely divorced from the management of the company and the underlying you know, security, the, the business, that it just doesn't matter whose capital it is. And as opposed to impact investing, where it matters much more, and I'll just lead a little bit with where my head's going, but I'd love for you to maybe unpack both, maybe the way, like examples, and not necessarily from your specific experience. I don't want you to talk about anything you're uncomfortable sharing, but just examples of other things you've seen or ways it can happen where because of the type of investor who's at the table, here are the ways in which it can sour the opportunity for real impact. And, and in particular, the, there's the old saying, who, he who has the gold makes the rules. And especially when we're talking about 
measuring impact and defining it if a large individual investor or even single organization comes to the table they get to have a lot of say in how we're how the investments get deployed and what type of impact that they're having and how it gets measured and so that has a lot of spill on effects can you just unpack that a little bit If you've been following this podcast for a while, you'll know that one of the big problems I see in impact investing today is the massive talk action gap. Many people are talking about impact investing, but far fewer people are actually putting their money where their mouth is. And there are a number of reasons why this problem exists, but one big reason is that it feels pretty scary if you've never made an impact investment before. That's why I'm excited to tell you about the Impact Investor Challenge at Spring Activator a program that empowers people like you to invest in what they value so we can drive more capital into supporting the success of purpose-driven entrepreneurs. And this in turn helps solve pressing global and local challenges and builds a community of like-minded change makers. So if you're looking to be a part of such a community, meet impact startups and be guided as you learn the proper due diligence process and actually deploy capital and make real impact investments, then this program's for you. Check out episode 37 of the podcast. That's where I interviewed Keith Ipple, CEO and founder of Spring Activator. We talk all about what the work that they do there. And then visit www.spring.is today to learn more and to register. Yeah, I think, and this actually comes a little bit more from my research from some of the things that I've seen. So I think one of the things that is a bit challenging is when you work with a lot of impact funds, and this is not all, there are some impact funds that are really locally based that have some really great experience, but there are some impact funds out there where, you know, most of the investment team is coming from Goldman Sachs or these other big investment banks. They have an MBA, but they might not know the market extremely well. And Africa is really unique. It's very different. And What I've learned is that there's a really big importance between trust of the entrepreneur, the local entrepreneur and the investor. And I think sometimes you have these kind of these specific funds or fund managers or even just individual investors who come into these deals looking for impact and they really try to run or shape the business as what they would do in the UK or Canada or the US, where really It's the entrepreneur that knows that market and you end up with a lot of tension between the investors. And of course, this happens in developed markets as well. But I just find that specifically when you have these more Western based investors coming in, trying to make an impact investment. And if they don't know the market well, you end up with a lot of tension and you end up really taking away from the business's organic growth. Um, I think this also happens with impact as well. We sometimes use these standardized metrics for impact. There's BBEE, there's IRIS, there's all these kind of tools that we use for impact. But sometimes it's the stories that matter most. Of course, the numbers do matter and it is important for these businesses to track impact. But sometimes the businesses know the impact that they're having to the local community, which is really hard to actually put into numbers. So sometimes you have these investors who are really trying to force specific impact numbers and specific, I've seen impact funds where the the business has to hit certain impact goals to get their next set of funding. And these investors are not super flexible on it. So it becomes really hard for the entrepreneurs to be able to communicate what's really happening. These are just a few things I've seen happen on the ground. Yeah, there's a lot to unpack there. There's uh, kind of two aspects of the kind of investor-entrepreneur 
relationship that I think maybe make the challenge even greater in the type of context where developed market, high net worth investor investing into a developing market, you know, some like you know, a lot of places in Africa, where two fundamental differences. One, because you were mentioning, I think quite rightly, that this can happen anywhere. It happens in developed markets all the time where this tension exists. But the I think the challenge is exacerbated because A, the cultural differences and understanding of the, the difference in the market is greater. If I I'm investing and I'm based in DC and investing somewhere in you know southern United States. I understand that context better than I would likely an, an African or an Asian context or a LATAM context. And the entrepreneur is often much more vulnerable, right? They just have fewer options and alternatives. If you're looking at making an investment into a you know Silicon Valley hot tech startup, they probably have seven other VCs all interested in alternatives and they're getting to choose which investors better align with their values. And that's just often not the case in an African context. And when you combine that lack of understanding and the power imbalance, you can create really, I think, perverse uh, outcomes. Yeah. And I think one thing, and, and hopefully this will change as we start to see more and more exits in unicorns in Africa, which is growing this year so far has been a record year for Africa in terms of exits and uh, unicorns. But one of the things that a lot of people don't understand is because this kind of VC, this tech world, uh, the investment is so new in Africa that usually a lot of these investors, a lot of the capital comes from people that exited businesses or came from family money of previous exits from businesses. And in Africa, we're just it's just so young that that hasn't happened yet. So that's why we don't see quite as many African investors who are coming into these deals who do have that knowledge and experience to work with the entrepreneur. So it does mean that a lot of African entrepreneurs are are quite stuck and not necessarily stuck. Sometimes it's really good, but they generally have to take out on Western capital because that's where the inflow is coming from. They don't necessarily have the option to to work with a more local uh, source. So it's one of the things that Nia, we, we talk about and we think about very seriously and it's why for every deal that we do, we always have a local partner that's co-investing with us. So this is someone on the ground who is either a business accelerator or a, a local angel investor or even a small local VC fund, because we know that they actually know the market, they're on the ground, and they're able to help support the entrepreneur with the capital that we're able to raise. Yeah, that's such a, a great point. And one of the things that I thought you know, was a really exciting opportunity in the case of World Vision. And I think is, is true for other INGOs where they have local presences, they have this amazing infrastructure, right? Like in, in the case of, I use World Vision because I'm the most familiar with it. They are operational in something like 90 plus countries across the globe. They've been there for, you know, many decades in most of those cases, 40, 50, 60 years in some cases. And 99% or 98% of the staff at World Vision were all like locals, the indigenous to the countries that they're working in. They weren't importing Westerners to come do the work. And so what you have is just like really deep, long-standing relationships and trust in those communities and boots on the ground who understand the local context. And can we, instead of only utilizing that to deploy grant capital or donations for traditional programs, could we also turn them into opportunities to find these entrepreneurs, these scouts who will identify, hey, here's an entrepreneur, here's a business that needs capital. And how do we, how does an organization like that 
use this amazing infrastructure that if you're trying, if you're Goldman Sachs and you want to try to recreate that overnight, you can't do it because it takes time, effort, and energy to build trust and relationships in communities, no matter how much money you have, right? And so how do we unlock that? And so what you're talking about is instead of, hey, if I can't build it overnight it can, and you don't have the scale to do that, let's partner with the on the ground, you know, boots on the ground institutions, grassroots folks who understand those communities. So I think it's such a, it's a great, um, solve for for the problem but if unless you're intentional about it it takes time and effort i imagine you got to find those partners and make that investment otherwise it doesn't just happen naturally exactly and i think there seems to be the way a lot of impact investment is done right now in africa is for each investment i actually was speaking to a canadian very small impact fund they do ticket sizes around a hundred thousand and they would go and visit the business from Canada three times before they actually would invest. And of course, that has a lot of cost to it. And it's cost that is really not needed. Obviously, it's really good for us to be able to go see the business and speak to the entrepreneur in person. But with technology, it's not necessary. And if you have a little partner who you trust, there's really no need for me to fly to visit every single business we're going to raise for. I will probably need all of them at some point, but it's this kind of cost where, you know, a lot of impact funds think that, oh, this is, it has to be me that goes and says okay to this business, where actually there's a lot of really educated, really experienced people in investment throughout Africa. So it it doesn't need to be like that. Yeah, that's a great point. And there's also the environmental impact of us flying all over the world all the time for every course, situation. Yeah. I think it also reflects a very like colonial mindset, which is I'm the one controlling the the dollars, so I need to be the one to see it and make the decision myself because I don't have these partners that I trust to who contribute into that process. And the other thing I wanted to kind of mention as another, I think, really concrete example of a way in which you can like really have exploitative impact investing. And, it, and this isn't reserved necessarily just for the wealthy, but when the, the fewer the investors who are involved, the less transparency, the less eyeballs on it, the more opportunity there is for exploitation and ownership of that business, right? The value creation that happens, you make those investments that happens on what are probably unfair or unreasonable terms where the, the investor is yep. taking too large a chunk of the business, having too much control over it. And so here's an entrepreneur who has this great idea of solving a problem in their community and are creating jobs and, and very little of that value actually goes to the employees or to the entrepreneur whose actually idea it was. And so th- I, I loved what you said about transparency as well, right? Like the yep. more we shine a light on this stuff, it's, sunlight's the best disinfectant. Yeah, a a great example. I was doing some work in Liberia, which is a very challenging market. And let me tell you, there is almost no capital going into Liberia. It is when I go to investors, Liberia is a a big no. Nobody wants to do it. So I was working, I was doing some research alongside this one impact fund that was being run by an American. And his investment thesis in Liberia was that he would take 51% of every company, no matter what. And I was working with very closely with this business. I've been working with them for five years. They're doing really great work, very much in renewable energy. And they were so strapped for capital that they were considering this 51% and pretty much had to talk them down from it, saying, we know that is an unfair 
valuation and deal that's going to happen. So when you have something like Neo, where everything is put forth, that all the investors can see the deal, see what it looks like. I think if that was the case, there would be people who would feel uncomfortable with the deal. Um, of taking 51% of a company. So when you have more eyeballs on it, you're going to have a lot more people see it. And you might even have people speak out saying that that doesn't seem that doesn't seem fair to the business. So I think it's a really good opportunity to not only share some of these amazing, these amazing deals that most people just don't have access to right now, but it's also just to make sure that we are those impact funds. If we become a viable option for the businesses, they're not going to have to go to those types of funds. They'll be able to get a much more fair and equitable deal. Yeah, that's 100%. The the more competition there is, the more attention, the more scrutiny, the more transparency. This is all just for the better for positive outcomes. I'd love to maybe just shift gears a little bit and tell everybody maybe a little bit about your background. You've got a very interesting um, background. You've done a lot uh, in a relatively condensed uh, time frame. I say that as somebody who's older than you. I'm very envious of your accomplishments and background here, but feel free to start wherever you want. Like, Where are you from originally? And, And tell us about some of your experiences along the way that's led you to where you are now. Yeah, sure. I grew up in the suburbs of Toronto, so very close to you, Dave. And I became really interested. I I started my journey in the NGO charity sector. So I, as a teenager, did a lot of fundraising at my school and just became really passionate about development and NGO work. So when I was 19, so very young, I moved to Rwanda to my parents' very, their dismay. They were extremely unhappy about it. But I got a job with an NGO there. And it was an NGO that focused on uh, sports and, and healthy living and, and making sure that kids uh, were you know able to play and have a physical education. So I did a lot of work for them and just fell in love with Rwanda, fell in love with the people and just really became interested in because Rwanda has such a horrific, horrific history with the genocide. And I just wanted to learn as much as I possibly could about what had happened. And at that time, and this is just a very, I I don't even think that this person would remember me, but he probably changed my life. I met this economist who was doing uh, his PhD at the time in Rwanda. And he was looking at how the world coffee prices had influenced violence throughout the genocide. So he was actually finding a a causation between the drop in coffee, world coffee prices, and where local violence was higher and lower before and during the genocide. And I just thought that was absolutely mad. I just couldn't believe that something like coffee and my cup of coffee that I get at Starbucks would, you know, have an influence on how much violence there was. And of course, it does make sense, right? All these people were being let go, all these workers weren't able to make an income, and it's much easier than to to join as combatants. So that kind of got me onto this, onto this path of working in economics. I changed, I had done philosophy before, I was studying ethics, and I changed over to economics, which was a pretty big change, and started to go into development economics and was really interested in conflict and uh, violence and the intertwine between the two. So I spent a bit more time doing some work in India as well. That was quite interesting. I was working for an NGO there. And by the time I finished my undergrad, 
and I've had all these international experiences, I was just really frustrated with the NGO sector and nothing against your experience with World no. Vision. But I was just No, thinking, it's frustrating yeah. for sure. And it's not a thing against World Vision. The entire sector has a lot of challenges and a lot of wonderful positives, but a lot of challenges. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And I just got a bit frustrated thinking that there's a lot of just really talented entrepreneurs and really talented people who the money's not going very far from aid. It's this kind of idea where it's just, it's not super empowering. The person just gets the money and they spend it or they get the good and they use it. And I just thought that there was something a lot more than that. And that wasn't necessarily me going into impact investing right away, but I wanted to start exploring some different options. So as I thought about that more, and this was a much more boring part of my life, I worked for the Bank of Canada as a uh, researcher. And it was somewhat interesting because it was during the the oil price shocks. It was quite an interesting time, probably not as interesting as COVID. So is this like 2015, 2016 type of Yeah, time 2015. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. From there, I was uh, extremely fortunate to win the Rhodes Scholarship, so I knew I was going over to Oxford. Um, and at Oxford, is tell yeah. everybody what. So I, I think everyone's heard of a, what a, you know the, a Rhodes Scholar, but what does that actually entail? It's a certain GPA and yeah, certain levels of commitment to community service, I imagine. Yeah. So they have their saying is making the world a better place think that's what their slogan is. So they look at service, character, leadership. You definitely have to have a, a quite a good GPA, but they look at a lot of lot of other things. And really they look at your potential to to create change. So I and I just to say what it is, it's a full scholarship uh, to Oxford for you to do your postgraduate. So I did my master's and then my PhD through them. Oh, that's amazing. And there were I think I was reading you were one of a very small number of Canadians to receive it that year. Is that right? Is it 11? Or yeah, so there's 11 Canadians per year. Yeah, it was really exciting. I had always wanted to go to Oxford. Oxford itself is an amazing and crazy place. It was very competitive. At that point, I had been in Halifax. And I don't know if you Halifax well, but it's a very chill place. Okay. So to go from there to Oxford, which was high intensity, really difficult studies was quite a jump. But from there, I started to do research on investment into Africa because that story about the Rwandan genocide had really stuck with me. So I started doing research in that. And when I started doing my PhD, I decided, as I said, to focus on this impact investment going into post-conflict Africa. And I lived in West Africa for three-ish years working with entrepreneurs, doing research alongside them. And really my job, and it was super cool, was really to just have cool conversations like this pretty much with entrepreneurs, with policymakers, with investors, with banks, with big multinational corporations, and just learn all about the markets and learn about the private investment, the, the private investment space in these types of countries. And one of the things that was just extremely frustrating, and uh, we've talked about it already, was that I was working very closely with these entrepreneurs. All of them were desperately looking for 100,000, 200,000, maybe 500,000 to grow their business. And then I was also working with all these impact investors who could not make the investment work unless it would be 2 million or 5 million. So you just had this big mismatch between what the entrepreneurs actually needed 
and what the impact investors were actually able to give. So one of the things I started, and this was just quite informal, I was still doing my research, was that I was doing all the due diligence for investors and then bringing um, that due diligence to individual investors in London and seeing if we were able to raise enough by bundling um, all of that together to, to help these businesses. That was the start of NIA. Very cool. So can you unpack a little bit, like what's happening that's preventing, I, I can, in my head, I, I can understand in the case of private equity, a lot of the times the, the every each will have the different minimum. But if you're talking about Africa, they're probably not doing deals much below five million. Maybe it maybe yeah. it finds them into a few million, but it's that type of territory. But development finance institutions also are kind of dealing in the kind of million plus type of ballpark, aren't they? And and I'm I guess I'm curious, is it still the same basic idea? Like in the case of private equity, it's just the economics, the scale, like we're going to do this due diligence, we need X you know, type of return, and there's going to be a cost associated with this. We're not here to do anything but make a return. If it's traditional private equity, they're not claiming to do anything else. But development finance institutions are, are, are do exist to help, you know, develop you economic development. And so what prevents them from being able to to take on these $500,000 ticket sizes or $200,000 ticket sizes? Yeah. So one of the things we like to say is that it doesn't matter the size of the ticket, the cost of doing due diligence for these funds is the same. So just on a finance side, it is really hard for them to justify spending the same amount of money on a you know $200,000 ticket compared to a $2 million ticket. And one of the things that happens is, as I said, these impact funds generally have teams um, that are on the ground or go to the ground. That costs a lot of money to do that. And the African markets are very fragmented. So except for some of the big markets like Kenya and Nigeria, where we are seeing a lot of funds right now deploying capital in a country like Liberia, you might really only have two businesses that are really ready to go to take on that 500,000 that you want to invest in. And it just doesn't make sense to pay for a whole team to be there for two businesses. So what you end up have, what you end up have, like what ends up happening, excuse me, is that you have all these funds in Nairobi and in Lagos and that's where they're putting all their capital right now because, of course, economically it makes sense, but it just means all of these smaller countries that do have some great businesses coming out, even Ghana, that does have some fun, fund activity, it's significantly less than what we're seeing in Kenya. And it's just because it's it costs them a lot of money to to do that due diligence, to do the monitoring, to do the technical assistance, and it doesn't make sense for them to do it below $2 million, $5 million. Yeah, it, 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 I guess I get that. I just might have expected, given they didn't have the same profit requirements, the type the same type of return requirements that traditional private equity might, that might allow them to go even lower than they do. And I guess you're saying the answer is no, that just the cost of no, it, they, they, they still have a, they still have to grow or they still have to at least maintain their cost base. And so yeah. that's just what it's taking. So one of the ways that, so one of the ways that the big DFIs, so CDC as an example, says that they reach those ticket sizes. So they do it in two ways. So they do it through financial institutions. So they'll invest in a big bank 
And then they expect that big bank to make out more loans to SMEs. In practice, we don't see that happening a lot. We don't see huge increases in lending to SMEs after the DFI has invested. The other way that they try to do it is what we call their fund of funds. So they'll provide capital to smaller SME funds. It can work. There have been successes. I actually recently chatted to someone at CDC who is in that sector, in the SME sector, and they've said that the funds haven't performed very well, so they're actually not going to enter many more of those. So if you actually look at that, their portfolio, less than 6% is actually doing that out of a you know 3.2 billion portfolio. So they are trying, but they I don't think they've figured it out yet. Yeah, yeah. Can we just reverse the course a little bit on your, on your thesis? And sure. I'd love to hear just like, what were sort of the takeaways from that thesis in terms of how private investment can impact rebuilding and post-conflict countries. And has your, have your views changed much since you first did that work? Yeah, my views have changed quite a bit. I went in thinking that impact investment was the answer, which is, of course, a very biased way of going into research. <laughs> I think and we all have our biases. It's just whether you are aware of them and state them up front, <laughs> which you're yeah. doing, which is good. <laughs> so going in... Yeah, I think I had a much more kind of optimistic view on on impact investing and, and how it can help. And this was coming through a lot of the employment opportunities it creates. Obviously, this goes into very academic work, but if you do some of Paul Collier's work and kind of the poverty trap work, it's this idea of pushing capital to a point where people can actually get out of a trap. So I had this very kind of theoretical, positive view. And when I got on the ground, I just found that it was so much more complex and complicated than that. So of course, there are some really fantastic. So as an example, there's this business I work with in Uganda, and Uganda is a, a post-conflict country. They dealt with terrible conflict, specifically in northern Uganda. And one of the biggest problems we have after conflict is what we call reintegration. So how do you take all these people that were fighting specifically child soldiers, which is even more difficult. And how do you reintegrate them into just their normal society, their norm, their you know local communities? And this is a really difficult thing to do. And I work with this one business in Uganda that provides loans for, for people to buy motorcycles so that they can become motorcycle taxi drivers. And they eventually pay that off so that they can actually own the motorcycle themselves. And a lot of people that... Um, that end up doing that are ex-combatants because they don't necessarily have, they don't have schools, they, they might not have any education, but this gives them an opportunity to actually make income. And so when you see a story like that, it's a really great story of a business actually helping with that reintegration. But then you have some more complicated stories where, just as an example in Liberia, you actually have the government being a bit difficult for impact investment to come in. They're trying to keep everything local because the conflict has the conflict has made them a bit wary about international intervention. So they've made it really hard for impact investors to come in. So I've worked with so many entrepreneurs in Liberia who were promised capital and the capital just never came because it was too challenging. And that's not necessarily the impact investment's fault, but you have a lot of people that uh, become very hopeless from those types of scenarios. There's just, it's, 
my my answer to you is that it's really complicated, and I wrote three hundred pages on it, so it's hard to go <laughs> into five hard minutes to here. It, yeah, uh, into five minutes. But but I think in general, there's absolutely opportunity to help where to have impact investors work with businesses that are truly helping with economic rebuilding after conflict. But I think the investors really do need to understand the complexities of that conflict. They need to understand generally a conflict has to do with ethnicity. One of the things that I was very unhappy with that I told you about the ultra high net worth client I was working with is that all of the investment, which is in a very tense country at the moment, was going to one ethnicity, which is just creates a lot more tension between them and a lot more opportunity for conflict and violence to happen. So you really need to take in all those complexities. And sometimes for an investor that they think it's way too much and it's this whole other stage of due diligence. But you also have countries, don't know if you know this, but some of the fastest growing countries are ones coming out of conflict. So you also have some pretty big opportunities for for growth as well. So it's, yeah, very complex. Yeah, I haven't studied it as you have. I appreciate your perspective on this. My anecdotal experience from just a variety of observations and primarily sub-Saharan Africa, in different contexts and even within certain countries, very different communities and contexts and challenges is the complexity is overwhelming. That there's the just poverty itself is, we're not only talking about poverty here, but, but even just that itself is so complex in terms of the nature of it, how it manifests itself, the causes of it, the solutions to it, given you know, your layering and as you mentioned, cultural differences, religious differences, socioeconomic differences. There's a history of like trauma in, in a lot of cases. Like it's just, it, it's mind blowing to me. And so coming from a perspective where before I had any experience, firsthand experience in these contexts, you sort of think about, and I think this is often a critique of the development and aid sector is, well, all this money and all this effort, we've been doing this for so long and there's still all these problems. They're ineffective and inefficient. And it's just, that comes from a place of not understanding how terribly difficult the problems are. And, and I love what you're saying about impact investing. I'm implying this from, from you know, your comment about, I, you went into your thesis with maybe more optimistic about how impact investing helped than, than you came out. And that's not to say that there isn't opportunity for impact investment to make real positive impact. I think that there is as well, but the problems are so much greater than that. And if I look at it and say, like, I think we need every tool at our disposal. I also wonder, and I'd love to, I'd love your feedback on this. I increasingly just wonder whether capitalism in its current form it can, whether we can you know, really solve a lot of the underlying problems with capitalism in its current form, because I think the underlying root, motivations prevent perverse incentives. Yeah, obviously, I think that could be a whole other sure. podcast. Yeah, yeah. Um, and specifically, when you look at Africa, when you look at the history of colonialism, the history of how global trade is set up, and there's so many things that are against Africa development that is has to do with capitalism. Yeah, lots. there's lots to say about that. And that goes a little bit more into my development academic side. But I do think... 
I do think that, and this goes way back to what I was saying, that I think if we work together, if we can make the market more transparent, and one of the reasons why I wanted to develop Nia was one of the things we're doing is education on the African market. We don't want these investors who, who might be going in with extremely good intentions. We want to make sure that they do have all the information to make sure that the investments they're doing are going to have the the best impact and the best effect on the local community possible. And that is why we're trying, that is is why with Nia, we're trying to develop educational tools. And we're also just developing a platform where people know that the investments are being locally sourced, are being locally vetted, and that someone's really taking a long time to think about to make sure that it's the money's going to the right place. Yeah, so let's unpack um, Nia more. I want one more quick question before we jump into Nia. So you mentioned Paul Collier at Oxford. He wrote, I think he's written a few books, if I'm not mistaken, but the one that I've read is the, is it The Bottom Billion? Bottom Billion. Yeah. Yeah. It's a very famous piece of work. It's also a very criticized piece of work. It is, yeah. I think it's still very much worth reading. It's an interesting, I enjoyed it, and even though I, you know, had questions and maybe disagreements with it. Is it is an interesting read. Did you get to study with, did you learn from Paul or were you in his classes? Is he, is he teaching or is he? A little bit. So he's not actually teaching anymore. Okay. He does take on some PhD students. I was not one of them. I was with another supervisor. But every year, this is a very random thing, but every year Oxford hosts, and it's mostly Paul, hosts a African Central Bank Summit. So all the African central bankers come to Oxford and they have two days of of talking about, you know, regional problems that that they're dealing with. And Paul brings in experts as well as himself to to work with these central bankers and to go through all these problems. Anyways, I got to be the note taker. Oh, uh, wow. <laughs> So that was quite fun. Yeah, so I did get to know him a bit through that, but he doesn't teach anymore. Cool. Thanks for indulging me on that. That was just a personal interest (laughs) question. So let's talk about Nia. So you've started Nia. Did you just start it in early 2021 or was it 2020 that you started? Okay, 2021. And you are, as you mentioned at the outset, you're looking to make essentially a fund where you're making investments into early stage, primarily sub-Saharan African businesses. Is it exclusively sub-Saharan Africa that you're working in? So Africa. So we're pan-African. Okay. So we do work with North African businesses as well. Okay. And your ticket sizes again were? 100,000 to a million. So that's for the businesses. And then in terms of what investors can contribute, it will only be a few hundred pounds. Okay. So yeah, let's be clear for folks who are listening and maybe aren't familiar with some of the lingo, ticket size would be the size of the investment that NIA Crowdfund is actually making into these small business, small medium businesses. And the individual investors, you're looking to try to get the minimum investment that an investor is required to make down to a few hundred pounds. Is that okay? Yeah, we're trying to get it down as to as little as we can. But of course, there is some regulation and administration behind that. There will be some sort of compromise, but yes, a a few hundred pounds. Okay. How much of, I'm trying to decide where to go with this. Let's start here because we're already (laughs) in. How much of that constraint is the economies of scale issue versus the regulatory issue? Oh, almost entirely regulatory. Okay. Yeah. That's what I figured. (laughs) Okay. And so in the, and are you, where do you want to be available? Where are you available for for investors now? And where do you want to be able to accept investment from? 
Great question. So we work with three different types of investors. So we work with institutional investors. So this tends to be mostly family offices. And so these are family offices that might not know Africa very well, and they want a really good pipeline of businesses with you know local partners that we work with and all of that. So we work with them. We also work with sophisticated investors like angel investors or people, high net worths. So we can work with them. Right now, we are regulated that in the UK, we can work with what's called retail investors. So this just means literally anyone. So in the UK, we are regulated to do that. Now, I would love to say that we are taking on retail investors in Canada, but really each country's regulation is a little bit different and it's the UK is one of the most, I would say, forward thinking of the financial regulation um, in terms of crowdfunding and allowing private investments to be more public. So that's why we've started in the UK. But in terms of institutional and high net worth and sophisticated, we can work with investors from all over the world. We're already working with investors in North America. We're working with investors in Europe. We work with lots of investors across Africa. We work with an investor in Singapore. There's lots of lots of options there. And we are trying really hard to extend where we can take on retail investors as well. So the EU will be next for us because their regulation is not super different from the UK. I have been working really hard for Canada and for Ontario specifically. Haven't made it too far yet because the regulatory is very strict. And what's really exciting and what I love is that recently Tunisia, Ghana and Nigeria have just passed crowdfunding regulation. So this means we will be able to and I think it will probably take because passing uh, legislation and actually implementing it will take a few years. But once that's all implemented, we will be able to raise within Africa as well. Okay, so this is good. There's a lot I want to unpack here. So, you know, the, on the regulatory front, and it's been my experience as well, I think just globally, the UK regulators are regarded as one of the most progressive regulators, not just on accessibility of private market investments, but just generally the regulate, regulation of their financial markets. They, on the financial advisory side, which is a, a realm that I have a lot of experience in, they were one of the first countries to ban financial advisors receiving commissions for selling investment mm. products, which creates a huge conflict of interest. Uh, There's been a whole kind of litany of these kind of really forward thinking and progressive. And I think the world looks to them as for leadership in, in hey, how did the UK deal with it and how's it gone over there? But the it's, it's I think w- what you're experiencing, right, is like this uh, different variations on the same problem, which is that reg- regulators around the world and developed markets say, when we've got an investment that want that you want to raise capital from investors, you typically would need to have a document called a prospectus. And that prospectus is a huge document that includes all sorts of disclosures, everything you can think of about the risks of the investment and all the information you need to research it. Not all of it, but a lot of information you would need to be able to assess the investment and decide whether it's a quality investment to make. And so what the regulators do is say, unless if you pro- unless you provide that prospectus document, you are not free to just sell the investment to whoever you want. And what we want to do is protect retail investors from being taken advantage of by shady business businesses that are, or risky businesses where the investor doesn't actually understand what they're getting into. So it's like a really you know noble idea. It's well-intentioned, I think, in a lot of cases. But the downside is what it does is cuts off nearly the entire private 
uh, market to retail investors because that document is very onerous to pr- you know to to produce Please. costly yeah like onerous both time energy and cost yeah and so what happens is there's the private markets are massive there's more far more private businesses in the world than there are public businesses and when you say to when you just as a shortcut say hey, you're not sophisticated enough to understand this and they're not providing you with enough information. We're worried you're going to take advantage of, so we just won't let you access it. That creates an unintended consequence of just excluding you know, ordinary investors from accessing a lot of opportunity in the market. And unfortunately, the impact investment market, because of the, the size and scope that most of these investments, the fund, even the funds, never mind just the individual businesses are at, just don't have the capacity to produce these documents. Is that like a fair, like this, and in each market, the rules are a little different. And so. Yeah. So it makes it hard to go from market to market as well, which is one thing that we're, we are dealing with. I think I, I really do appreciate the regulatory, the regulators trying to protect retail investors, because of course there are definitely, there have in the history, in, in history, there's definitely been situations where retail investors have been taken advantage of, people have lost a lot of money. So of course, I completely understand why the regulators do this. I think that there is a bit of a compromise. So in terms of in the UK, we don't necessarily need to give a hundred page prospectus to investors. They do get a due diligence kit that we've put together. So we've verified everything. The due diligence kit is about 12, 12 pages. They also get the pitch deck. They also get a video pitch as well. So they're still, they're still, they're getting all the financials. They're getting all the audits. So they still have lots of things to go through to give them a good sense of whether they want to invest in the business or not. But the idea of having to put together this hundred page document of pretty much legal jargon that retail investors can't understand, we're trying to make that just a lot more accessible. We want someone to be able to open up a due diligence package and actually know what the business does, what their financials look like. In terms of we are just right now filming a video to explain what the different financial tools are. So if something's a convertible note, what does that mean? If something's uh, a safe, what does that mean? If something's revenue-based financing, what does that mean? So all of these things can be very accessible, but I think right now the private market is trying to make it unaccessible. So there's lots of things we can do to help with that. Yeah, I think that's the mm-hmm. main point. Yeah, it, it strikes me as, and I agree, this is, this is all with a caveat, that is well-intentioned, I think, and I think in a lot of ways, I believe we do need protections for investors. I think what uh, my issue with it is that it is a very poorly defined set of criteria usually the accredited investor rules which implicitly assume that if you have a lot of wealth that that means you have some level of sophistication around money and i can assure you from my experiences advising people there's a very low correlation between you know level of wealth there's maybe some marginal correlation but it's very low if it exists between you know wealth and sophistication around investments and we have this in most developed countries as i'm not as familiar with the uk and but i know the us and canada pretty well there's almost yeah. no personal finance or investment knowledge baked into the public education system. And so no. we create the system where we don't educate people about un- understanding personal finance or investments. And then our answer to the problem is, well, we just got to hit them with a 200 page document full of legal jargon and information that they can't, they're not prepared and equipped to understand anyway, as that, as this, that's protecting them from something. I would love to see a study done 
where he actually removed accredited, like the accredited investor rule and actually measured outcomes. I wouldn't be surprised if the result were dramatically different between those two. I think there's probably much smarter ways we could distinguish. I've even wondered, and I know this is not your, I'm not expecting a, you to <laughs> comment on this. I'm just venting now. But if you had some sort of certification process, you just, hey, no matter what your wealth level is, you got to go through this course. You have to prevent get the certificate. It's going to be 10 online classes. You got to answer a test at the end of it. And if you go through that process and you get the certificate, you can go ahead and make those investments. And for anybody who's not serious about it, they're not even going to bother going through any of the time and attention that it takes. And those who are, then it's not an issue of your wealth. It's an issue of whether you understand a basic amount of material and you're motivated enough to do it. Yeah. And I really appreciate, and there's quite a few institutions or organizations out there. So I work with, or I know of one called the African Angel Academy. There's also one based out of Seattle called the Angel Accelerator, I believe. And anyways, these are courses to to teach people um, how to do impact investing. And if you're coming from nowhere, it teaches you what you should be looking for. And specifically with the African Angel Academy, they talk a lot about the markets in Africa and, and what you should be looking for. So I think there are a lot of opportunities where people, they can learn a lot. And whether that means you're technically a sophisticated investor, I think that starts to become a regulatory gray area that I don't actually know the answer to. But I do think there's lots of people out there who are trying to open up this market and allow more people into it. If we can think back, and this is why crowdfunding is great. We, in the UK, as an example, we have Monzo, which is this big fintech company. They're doing extremely well. And they raised uh, their seed funds on Cedars, I believe, which is an equity crowdfunding campaign, which means that Average people have shares and had shares way before they were big and their wealth is growing. And we didn't necessarily see that with Facebook. So I think crowdfunding is a really great opportunity to allow people to average people, not just these really high net worth or, you know, ultra high net worth uh, people into these really exciting deals. So talk about, that's great. And talk a little bit about what, as you have started to are able to accept retail investment. What's that experience like for the investor? Their their money is getting pooled with other kind of investors and you're taking this pool of money and now you're deploying it. The ticket sizes we talked about are 100,000 to 1 million in pan-African businesses. What types of businesses? And maybe just give an idea around to like how would an ordinary you know retail investor incorporate this into their investment activity? Is this like a a portion of their money and what type of return kind of risk are you expecting in whatever general terms you can? Yeah, lots of questions there. One of the first things I'll just say is that we are not a fund, so we don't manage your money for you. So it is a platform, you put your money onto it and then you pick and choose which businesses you want to, no, that's okay, that you want to invest in. And we see that as just being like a very exciting thing because a lot of our investors want to be quite active. So So the key is the investors are making their own choices about which businesses you're serving up hey, we've done due diligence on these. We think these are good businesses. And now you can choose which ones you want to make investments in. Awesome. Exactly. So in terms of actually like signing up for the platform, it's not quite up yet. It will be up very soon, but you just need to register as an investor. What we do, and we actually do this for all of our investors, is an investor actually has to take a 10-question quiz, which just ensures that they know that their capital is at risk. They know most of the terms we're talking about. This is just to make sure that the 
even if they're a retail investor, that they have a sense of, of what's happening. So this is just a knowledge uh, test that they go through. And what we hope is that if a retail investor doesn't know what something means, that they then Google it and then come back. So that is the hope with that. Then there's just a, a quick KYC check. So we generally need a passport and a proof of residence just to ensure this is for our regulation. And then, as I said, you can put money up onto the platform and then you choose where that money is going. So we are going to have new investments come in every month. So we'll have two or three new businesses every month. What we generally do is we take information on what each investor is looking for. So some investors have a specific geographical area they're interested, like East Africa. Some people have specific impact areas they're interested in. So let's say food security and then the types of businesses. So we work with two different types of businesses. So one, we work with ventures. So these are, this is like VC. This is tech-enabled businesses, high growth, really looking to expand. And we do seed rounds with them. <coughs> and so with that, we'll do an equity deal with them. And as I said before, what we do is the investor will put that money there. The investor is buying shares into the business and from there, they're actually able to get updates. They'll get updates on the board meetings and all of that will go to their kind of home page, like a feed. So you get updates on how the investment is doing. We also work with traditional based businesses. We call them dynamic. So these are more, these, as I said, are more traditional like businesses, but they're looking to expand and grow. They have some good traction. If we were to put this in an investment round, it would be more like series A, series B. But usually these businesses haven't actually done that much raising. And with these types of businesses, we do revenue-based financing, which means it's a lot more like a debt structure and the investor will have a much better sense of when their money will come back. So with that, we generally look at, and I have to say we can't guarantee returns, but with those, generally those investments are around three, sometimes four years for the debt-like instruments. And usually we see returns in uh, USD to be around kind of 8% per year. And then for equity, again, this is much longer, more patient capital, generally five to seven years, we say. We can see returns 15% or higher. It really depends on the company and specifically if they're acquired or if a new VC fund comes in. So there's lots of different options. And what was the sort of time frame typically on the revenue-based financing side? Sorry, that's three to four years. Three to four, yeah. Okay. So revenue-based financing, and you can correct me if I'm misspeaking here, but for those who are listening, in this case, you're, you're putting up your capital, the company's using that capital and paying you back through as a percentage of the revenue that they generate. So it's more affordable, it's, it's more flexible term than a typical bond might be where they'd have like a fixed interest yeah. payment. So you lend them, an investor lends a million dollars. In this case, I know your investors or retail investors are doing smaller amounts, but in aggregate, if they're receiving a million dollars, there's no sort of fixed 5% interest payment. No matter what happens to your revenue and the cyclicality in your business, you owe that 5% interest and you got to keep paying it and so, potentially more because you're paying back the capital, the, the principal as well. Revenue-based financing just gives them more flexibility that as the revenue is higher, they can pay more. And when it's lower, they can pay less and 
Exactly. And we find this, at least in my experience, to be a lot better with African businesses, specifically like agricultural businesses that are so seasonal. And we want to make sure that the business is going to succeed. Sometimes we see that these very fixed, unflexible interest rates can actually really harm the business. So we prefer to use revenue-based financing to make sure that when there are down seasons, when it's rainy season, that there's a lot more flexibility. But it also means, which is great, that you also have a opportunity for a higher positive side as well. So you can have businesses that completely outgrow what revenue was projected and you're getting a much higher return than just the interest rate. Yeah. And and but and then on the flip side, one of the consequences as well is that you don't have definitive it's going to get paid back in 3.2 years. It's depends because the rate at which they're paying back is going up and down at different times. And so you just have a little, you have more variability. You make it pay back sooner or later, but you also may earn a slightly higher return or slightly lower return than expecting given. But it it also, as you, you know, why this is so attractive and especially in this type of environment. And I think it, you know, can apply in all environments in developed world too, but is it just gives a lot more flexibility to the entrepreneurs, which is ultimately what we're trying to do, right? Is make a positive impact. We want these businesses to succeed, not just because of the return we're going to generate. If we have to yeah. give up some return and we end up earning slightly lower return, but they're successful as a result, that's what we care about as impact investors, as opposed to traditional investors who may not care as long as they get their money back. Yeah. And we really do focus on the platform about making sure that the impact stories and measurement is there. Now, we are dealing with uh, a lot more raises than maybe a fund that does, you know, 15, 20 businesses. So our impact measurement is not quite as uh, a deep dive as some of the impact funds do. But for each business, we do have KPIs that we track depending on what the business is doing for the community. And we make sure that the investors get to see that with with each investment that they make. For example, if we are working with a, a health company, we work with them um, franchise of health clinics in the slums of Kenya, we will track specific KPIs that have to do with their healthcare, amount of patients they were able to see, what types of patients are they seeing, maternal, the, sorry, I'm losing track of my words. Maternal health? Yeah, newborn health and as well as a child's, child mountain. Child nourishment. So just as an example, that's just an example, but we do do KPIs that have to do with impact and we make sure that our investors are seeing that. And we also think that investors like to see stories. So we do also just post stories of employees of these businesses that might be able to give a great story about how that job has been able to send their kids to school and how it's maybe changed their life. I've seen other investments where an employee has used all the training and gained their income and then started their own business. We also try to update with those stories as well. Yeah. Can we pause on impact measurement? Because sure. <laughs> I, I, I wrestle with the tension between the philosophy and the saying there's a saying that what gets measured gets managed right or the inverse what doesn't get measured doesn't get managed the discipline and kind of rigor that that requires which i think is healthy on the one hand on the other hand that that creates a lot of tension in the sense that i think what happens when we start to measure things is that we disproportionately value things that are easily quantified and it also is much more vulnerable to our misunderstanding 
of the problem and how to solve the problem and what positive impact is because you're placing so much emphasis on these metrics. And so what it leads us to are potentially pursuing outcome, pursuing metrics that don't actually necessarily correspond with actual positive real world outcomes. And as investors, it it also feeds this kind of like colonial patriarchal approach, which is I'm the investor and I expect you to prove to me that the, the impact that, that they're having here. What's your kind of thoughts on all of that? Yeah, I think there's a lot of truth in that. I have worked with entrepreneurs, and I, I have to say this, who just, they hate impact investors because mm-hmm. the impact investors are creating a lot more work when the entrepreneurs are like, well, I just need to go run my business because they have mm-hmm. all of these impact mandates and impact measurements that they need to do. So with us, we know that people want to see some of those measurements, but we do it in the least um, invasive way possible. We really don't want an entrepreneur to have to sit for three days or a week to to manage the, the monthly data that they have to put in. We want to make sure that these businesses are doing what they do, is which is running their business. So I do think that sometimes it can get in the way. There is another thing with some of the work in Nigeria I was doing, and this was for my research for my PhD. I had a commercial investor who was Nigerian. He ran a Nigerian fund. And he said that he really disliked the impact investors and the impact measurement because when you included the impact measurement in the valuation, these businesses were being overvalued, which means that him as a commercial investor was being outbid by a lot of things and he's a local investor. So Mm. I think we just have to be really careful that, of course, we want these investments to have a social impact. We want them to do a lot of good and create a lot of economic opportunity for the local communities, but we don't want to take away from what is, you know, the the main point of the investment, which is the business and allowing the business to to do the absolute best that they can and to grow as much as possible. So I do think specifically when it comes to governance, making sure that employees are being treated properly, making sure there's no exploitation, making sure that there is an er- inherent impact in for the consumers, for the suppliers, for the employees and for the local community. I think that is all really important, but you just want to make sure you're not taking away from the business. Yeah, it's really well said. I'm going to ask you this. It's because I think maybe some people who are listening, you might have this question just to underscore this point. It should hopefully it's already been clear. But what makes Nia Crowdfund different than something like Kiva? Oh, really good question. So first off, Kiva is working with microfinance. So they do what we call peer-to-peer lending. So this is where uh, you can put, as a retail investor, you can put, you can loan uh, a small amount of money and they bundle all of that money and give a loan to a local business person. With Kiva, they tend, as I said, to microfinance. So you will not often see a check size going to a business that is over 50,000. Sometimes you will, but if that is the case, it's going to an organization that is then lending out to other people. So you're looking at much smaller loans. And of course, 
loans is the key there. So these are set interest rates going to be paid back. NIA is different in the sense that we are giving equity or what we call debt ventures. So that's the revenue-based financing. And we're doing a check size of 100,000 and, and a million. So really, we are looking at established businesses that are really looking to grow. We're not looking at, even though this is fantastic, we're not looking at a farmer who's selling his milk in a shack on the side of the road. We're very much looking at really established businesses that have huge ambition and that have good revenue traction and that are really looking to to expand. Yeah, we're much more into the businesses that could potentially be unicorns or really grow and expand into different geographies and not just small microfinance yeah. projects. Okay. So like quick take, quick summary of that. You're A, addressing the missing middle problem, which Kiva isn't. Thanks to Kiva and all the other wonderful organizations providing microfinance, $50, $100 loans, even 1000 10000 That's yeah, it's, that is it's microfinance. Fantastic. It's wonderful, yeah. it's needed, but it's it also is far more developed. And there's this missing middle of, hey, an organization needs 100, 200, 500,000, and there's nobody out there doing that lending. You're stepping yeah. in, you want to do that type of lending. And we're not lending, but investing, sometimes it's equity, sometimes it's revenue-based. And the individuals who use NIA, in the case of Kiva, they're, they're lending their money and getting their money back, hopefully. And in the case of Nia, they're making an investment and they're going to get a return yeah. on that. Hopefully get a return on that investment. That's okay. Work very hard to make that happen. Yeah. Okay. Awesome. So what happens in the case? So when you, like just logistically, when you crowdfund, so you're raising capital from, re, let's say retail, and you've got, you've raised $50,000 through retail investors and you've got an opportunity that needs 100k. What happens? The investors do they make that investment or they only make the investment once you have enough kind of capital to actually deploy that investment or are you making the investment on a rolling basis? How's the Yeah, really good question. So if you look at a very typical crowdfunding model, so if you look at like WeFunder in the States uh, or Cedars in the UK, usually what the rule is you set a goal, the business sets a goal for the investment and they need to reach that goal in order for them to actually get that money. Now, what we've done, and we took a really long time to think about this, is we started off with that model and then we said, wait, if a business wants to raise 500,000, but they raise 300,000, that's still a lot more than what they else. <laughs> I'm sure they don't want to say no to the 300,000. Yeah. yeah. So what we've done is we have the business set a goal. And then what we do is we look at, well, looking at the, the transaction, looking at what they actually need to do with the money. We actually set a minimum amount okay. that they need to raise for the for it to make sense for us to do. So for some businesses, I will say that for us, it's very hard to do under 100,000. But if they raise over 100000 we can generally figure out if that money is going to be useful and have the investment make sense. And that is just us kind of thinking that's how it works in the Western world. But actually, that doesn't make a lot of sense in Africa to put super strict uh, rules around it that we want to be a bit more flexible. Yeah, and it sounds like, you know, because the, the case against deploying it, if it's not enough is, well, listen, if it's just not enough that you can actually execute your what you need yeah. to do, the strategic plan, well, then I don't want to waste the money because it's going to be unsuccessful. And what you're saying is there's a range, right? They'd like to raise this much. We're going to determine what that minimum amount they need for it to be effective. And we'll set that minimum. And so that if they don't hit their target, but hit our minimum, it's still worth deploying that capital. 
Yeah, yeah, exactly. And we'll make that quite quite clear in all the documents that are up. Cool. Can you talk just a little bit, we're getting towards the end here, but and I appreciate all your time. Can you talk a little bit about what the experience is like for the other two types of investors that you work with? So if we've got somebody, you know, working at a single family office or uh, running a foundation or even multifamily yep. offices, what, what's that? How do you work with them? What's a, what's a typical, you know, client look like in that scenario? Yeah, I'll give the example of family offices. That tends to be where we get our most interest. So with family offices, we will work more closely with them. So for example, generally people, individuals who are using the platform, they might hear from us sometimes. We'll do webinars so that they can meet the businesses and the entrepreneurs that they want. They use the platform and everything they need is on the platform. With family offices, we tend to work a bit more closely with them. So we know exactly what the family is looking for, what types of businesses And what we actually do, because they write a bit of bigger checks, is that we actually, before an investment will go on the platform, we will go to the family offices that we think it's a good fit for to see whether they're interested. So we tend to do a little bit more work with the family offices to help figure out exactly what businesses they might be looking at. And they get to look at those businesses before they go on the platform, just so we have a sense of whether there will be some big tickets that are interested in that business. And this just gives us a sense of if we're going to be able to raise for the business. And so we just want to make sure, because it's never good to put a business up that doesn't raise a lot of money uh, or doesn't come close to that minimum. So we that's generally how we work with our family offices. We work with two different types of family offices. So we work with one set who are, let's say, not hesitant about Africa, but they're quite new. They want to learn more. And they don't want to put large amounts of capital into it. So with them, we'll work with them. We try to find right fits and then they'll decide which businesses they want to put into their portfolio. And then they tend to be a little bit more removed. They'll get our updates. We give them more detailed updates because of the larger ticket size, but they're relatively removed after the investment is made. We do have some family offices that are really interested in Africa are looking for a really good pipeline of businesses and they tend to do much larger ticket sizes. So these are generally family offices that in a business will put a hundred thousand or more into a business. And with those family offices, they tend to want to be more involved with the business they're investing in. So we can And not always, but we can try to find a board seat for that family office. They tend to like to be a bit closer with the entrepreneurs. So we do mentoring and networking events with them. So there are two different options there. One where a family office is not super involved and that's what they want. And then one where they become a lot more involved with the business and get to know the business really well. Interesting. Okay. Yeah, that makes sense. Have you ever, and would you ever put any funds onto your platform? Like I imagine- Oh, like an impact fund instead of in addition to individual businesses. Hey, here's a fund working in West Africa and they're buying these types of, you know, businesses. And I'd like to invest through that fund. I imagine it gets a lot more complicated. Yeah, it's something that we've looked into. I think what we've looked into a bit more is that we want to be able to have a fund that NIA manages that actually puts investments into the deals that we raise for. So that would be a more ideal scenario for us. Everything goes back to regulation. Everything is a regulatory hurdle. So that takes another set of regulations in order to do that. We are looking at, and this is a bit more of a gray area. So instead of an investor being able to pick and choose each and every single business, 
we may be able to have bundles where the investor can put uh, money into that bundle, which then goes to the separate businesses. So we are trying to look at ways to make it a little bit easier for the investor if they might be a bit overwhelmed and not sure how to pick and choose. So yeah, we are looking at that. But right now we're not looking at taking on like raising for funds, although I believe it is possible on a regulatory side. Got it. No, that, that makes sense. You offering a fund of your own you know, the investments on your platform you know, is an obvious uh, solution, but it, to the investor who's not sure about how to put together a portfolio, like at, at a, on a small scale, an individual make an investment or two, no problem. They're not worried about their asset allocation and how that fits into the broader portfolio because it's, it's a relatively small chunk of their portfolio. But to the extent you have investors wanting to make more meaningful you know, investments across the various businesses, then the stakes start to get higher and maybe they start to feel a little more, oh, I, you know, yeah. I wish I had some feedback on how much to be allocating to these various businesses, which have different risk and return profiles yeah. associated with them. So yeah, it, it, it could be a pretty interesting avenue. Yeah, we're definitely looking into it and seeing how to, within some of these regulatory barriers, how we can make it as easy as possible for the investor. And there's lots of tools. And this is, again, coming out of the UK. So the UK has just maybe about a year ago, they've come up with secondary markets. Mm -hmm. I don't know if you've heard of this, but crowdfunding platforms are um, allowing people to, to buy and sell, and with, sell one with one another. We're looking at those options as well. There's so many things that can be added to this to make it the best experience for the investors. But one one hurdle at a time, I think. It took us a long time to get the UK regulator to say that bringing on these African businesses was okay. Yeah, I, I bet. I bet. Thank you for that work that you're doing because there's not a lot of folks you know, working on that problem. And so as you work through it and pave the way forward, it makes it easier for others who come behind you to be able to be able to do that. Yeah, I love this. Yeah, yeah. Is there do you have any other things you wanted to mention or calls to action? Sarah, I'll just mention your the website is neacrowdfund.com. Is that right? Yeah, I'm going to link that in the show notes as well. Yeah, that's fantastic. So uh, you can sign up now. As I said, the platform is actually not up and running yet, but it will be very soon. By the time uh, this goes live, it might be. I don't. Do you have an expectation for by Q? Yes. Okay. Yeah. All right. Yeah. So it'll be so it, roughly around the time this is coming out. <laughs> yeah, and you can, as an investor, if you're interested, you can literally just go and sign up. It walks you through how to onboard. The onboarding takes five minutes and then you'll have access to African deals. We have a really good set of deals uh, that we're launching with, which are really exciting. And then if you're kind of a family office or if you have questions, I'm happy to give you uh, my email to put in the notes, but you can always contact me and we can walk through more of what deals look like and, and how we work with family offices or institutions or anything like that. So really yeah, really happy. Hoping we can get lots more people interested in Africa, make the market a lot more transparent, and uh, hope that some of you guys listening will join the platform and see some of these awesome businesses. Awesome. Listen, thanks so much for taking the time to come on today. It was a really fascinating discussion. I really enjoyed hearing your perspective on the challenges in the, the markets you're operating in. So. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. And I really appreciate you taking interest. I know with your experience in, in Sierra Leone and South Africa, I believe it's really great to have someone really interested in the African markets and give me the chance to talk about it a bit more. So thank you. Awesome. Listen, well, hopefully we'll have you back on down the road when NIA Crowdfund is huge and successful and uh, making massive amounts of impact and we can talk about the lessons learned. 
That sounds great. I would love that. Hey, everyone. Thanks so much for listening to the Impact Investing Podcast. If you like what you heard, I'd be incredibly grateful if you left a review on iTunes. And uh, heads up, we're now available on most audio platforms, which includes iTunes, but also Spotify, Google, Overcast, you name it. And also, you can now use Siri to listen to the podcast by saying, Hey, Siri, play the Impact Investing Podcast. Here's to the Impact Investing Podcast. Yeah, just like that. You're listening to the Impact Investing Podcast.